Good evening again. Um, I think what I'm going to do is uh, go through a book called the Muman Khan and do a series of Dharma talks on that. For a long time, I used to talk about kind of classic Buddhist subjects, and then people said, talk more about contemporary affairs, and then people said, talk more about psychological issues and the, the challenges that people are encountering. And I've sort of done uh, elements of that. But I think what we'll do now is we'll go through a book called the Mumon Khan. The Mumon Khan is one of the classic books of koans. And it was written in the, I think, the 11 or 1200s it was pulled together. Um, so. ancient classic book, you know, tens and tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of practitioners in Japan, China, and Korea, uh, and the United States and Southeast Asia have used this particular text and the koans in it. So the koans um, are the, the classic Zen teaching stories. Now, every teaching method is endeavoring to try to help people see what is most true and most fundamental, to see the non-dual, to see the true nature of their own mind. And there are many different styles of teaching, many different aspects of teaching. There's the, the teaching of boundless mind, where you begin to hold your mind spaciously and inclusively, which we often emphasize here. There are different teachings of, of samadhi and, and uh, concentration. The teaching stories of the koans are a particular kind of teaching story that is aimed, the intention is, for people to, to look into the koan using concentration, using the, their understanding of the non-dual, to see basic principles of life, basic principles of themselves. So <clears throat> uh, by a teaching story, we might say that each koan brings up a particular point it might bring up the point of oneness. It might bring up the point of the duality and oneness. It might bring up the point of my personal preferences. It might bring up the point of, of the bodhisattva spirit. It might bring up the point of, of all at oneness and the completeness of every moment. There are different things. But the way these koans work is they endeavor to help you become curious to look into something to actually have a direct, vivid experience. Um, now, koans are not, they're not mechanical things, so people have different kinds of experiences with the different koans. But the intention always in practice is direct experience, direct experience. What is the, the direct experience of the non-dual? What is the direct experience of the all at once? What is the direct experience of the source of all things? What is the direct experience of emptiness? What is the direct experience of the inclusiveness of all things? What is the direct experience of the, the aggregate nature of all things, etc. So the koans um, were, were used both kind of informally. They started off as just somebody would see somebody in Sanzen or see somebody in, in a group, and they would just ask them a pivotal question. And somebody would ponder that question. You know? Or people would have their own internal questions. Who am I? You know, and, and you begin looking at the question, who am I? And it becomes a real koan. And so the question, who am I, you know, is not about personality. It's not about situation. It's not about the random thoughts. It's not about the, uh, the, the, the vagaries of our you know, constant um, movement of emotion, the labiledness of them. It's 
not about this particular body, which is changing all the time, which is so different when it's old than it was when it's young. It's about what is my essence? What is the, what is the, essential, what is the essential thing that is present in all places and all times? What is, the essential, what is my true nature? So that question, who am I? You very quickly get through all of the, the social stuff. Uh, not my clothes, not my house, not my car, not, you know, all that stuff. And you begin, what, what's, what's at the core? And that becomes a koan. To really say, what is at the core? What is at the core? What is at the core? Who am I? Who is it that answers? Who is it that responds? Now, koans can be very, there are many different kinds of koans. And they can be very simple, uh, like, like the who am I koan. And they can be very, very rich and complex, like the whole of life. And depending upon, you know, where we're at, we can see different koans from different dimensions, different facets, different sides. So I think we'll go through this, this collection of the Mumon Khan. Mumon Khan is the gateless gate. And the gateless gate is a classic uh, description of enlightenment, of awakening, that the experience of, oh, everything is whole and complete or inclusive, or whatever your particular insight is. And you see, oh, it's always been that way. It's always been that way. I just didn't recognize it. So the gateless gate is that which has always been wide open, but we just haven't recognized it. So a lot of these koans are trying to help us recognize what is already present, recognize what is already manifest, recognize what is already moving in our lives. So most of the koans are not about, um, fundamentally about, you know, you're ignorant, you do this thing and you'll become wise, but rather they're about recognizing how the great mystery unveils itself and, re and, re and uh, reveals itself in your life all the time, which we often overlook. So the Mumon Khan was one of the earlier collections of koans. It's considered the, the classic collection of koans. There are a number of collections. Traditionally, in our lineage, there are 1,700 koans. Uh, the Rinzai school, Linji school, in China, the Rinzai School in Japan is the school that's most noted for using koans. And there's a, a curriculum of 1,700 koans that people go through. Um, and the, the beginning of the koan usually is the Mumon Khan. And in the end are usually the precepts. And there can be all sorts of things in between, lots of different, different levels. Some of them are very straightforward. Some of them are endlessly deep. Any koan, you can continue working on. So I thought it might be nice to do the Mumon Khan because it will help me work on each of these koans again also and help me to kind of look at them from a more mature vantage point. Because we, we see something when we were 20, and we could see the same thing when we were 30, and the same thing when we were 40 and 50 and 60 and 70, and the same thing looks different. It unfolds because we have different experience because we can bring something different to it. It has a different richness to it. So I'll, I'm kind of using these as uh, as a thread for my, my practice. And I will contemplate and work on each koan before I talk about it. So each week I'll talk about a different koan. This, this is the introductory uh, talk. So the Mumon Khan, um, collected by Master Mumon. Khan just means record, and Mumon is the record of, of, of Mumon. And there's lots of other different Khans, lots of other records of teachers, records of, of teaching. Um, 
this one began being collected by him, and he put them in a kind of order. He said, okay, well, if you're going to work on koans, it's really good to work on the, the fundamental oneness of all things, because a lot of koans are really based on that. So let's work on the fundamental oneness of all things. And so he put the koan mu at the, as, the, as the beginning uh, koan. And then as things unfold, unfold and unfold, he has more and more complex and richer, richer koans. And then there are many other books of koans. Our particular tradition, uh, the white plum lineage from Mayazumi Roshi, is, is a mixture of both Soto, uh, the, the South Sung school of, of calm abiding, of Shikantaza, of big open-minded sitting in awareness school, and the, the Rinzai school of, the, of penetrating inquiry, penetrating um, curiosity, which involves, both of them involve concentration, a different kind of concentration if you're holding the mind really large and everything is contained in it versus if you're holding the mind really pointedly and you're looking deeply into something. Still it's a concentration, just different flavors of concentration. Well, Mayazumi Roshi's father, Bayan Hakuchen, uh, Daiosho, Daiosho just means great teacher, his father was a uh, Soto Zen Buddhist priest in Japan and had a temple Kiragayaji and somewhere around near Mount Fuji, I think. And Maizumi Roshi grew up as a temple, you know, son of a temple priest. And then he came to this country uh, and was sitting at a place called Zenchuji in uh, LA, and that was a classic Soto place. But when he was young, he had gone to school and he had lived in a Rinzai um, hostel, Rinzai center, you know, kind of like a lot of his Zen centers are these days. A guy named, um, uh, huh, mind just went blank. I'll think of it in just a minute. Who was a Rinzai master who had a little house. In his house, he had students come in. And the students became his, his Dharma students, his, and they worked on koans. So Maizumi Roshi had the Soto lineage through his father, which was a lot of it was ritual and priestcraft. Then he had the, um, the koan, the first koan lineage through Koryu Roshi. Thank you very much, Koryu Roshi. Um, and then he came to this country, and he was in a Soto place. And then he decided his, his understanding was inadequate. And so he went and did a little bit of work with Aiken Roshi, who was in a Rinzai school, the Diamond Sangha. And then he also went back and finished the koans with Koryu Roshi and finished the koans with uh, Yastani Roshi. So he has what we call Dharma transmission, permission to teach in three different lineages, two of which are Rinzai lineages, one of which is a Soto lineage, two of which are koan lineages, one of which is a calm abiding lineage. So he went through the koans uh, at least twice, probably three, three times, if you consider his early days with Koryu Roshi, and then he later did koans again with Koryu Roshi, and then he went through and did them all with Yastani Roshi. So our tradition is, as often is the case, mixed up. It's a syncretic tradition. Uh, so we do koans. Chosen went through the entire curriculum. I went through um, the Muman Khan, lots of the Blue Cliff record, and then I started working with Harada Roshi 25 years ago, and Harada Roshi would just pick random koans. He'd say, okay, work on this koan, work on that koan. 
And so he felt that there were about 60 or 80 really essential koans. So Maizumi Roshi worked through the books, were chosen sequentially, and Harada Roshi did it randomly with me. Uh, and he would pick them from different collections. Um, so, um, in our, our Zen tradition, the tradition of the white plum, has, has that syncretic flavor to it. And our tradition here is even more syncretic because we have Tibetan Buddhist teachings and we have Dzogchen teachings and we have Theravadan teachings and we bring in loving kindness and we bring in inner critic work and we bring in you know, all these different things as part of our kind of whole package of, of teaching. It's not one particular thread. So there are some places that teach one thing. They just teach one thing over and the, the idea is you teach one thing and you go very deep and you become very still and... and um, proficient in that one thing. And our particular lineage, for better or worse, because my mind is this way and Chosen's mind is that way, is a very, very wide lineage. So we will sometimes teach about the boundless nature of mind. It's nothing but space. It's all present. has no, no limits. All right here. All you need to do is just simply turn your mind to it. Just recognize it. Or we might teach you know, the importance of loving kindness, or we might teach the importance of, you know, following the precepts and being meticulous and looking at the three different levels of precepts. Or we might teach about, about um, koans. Koan, Chosen does a, a koan retreat in the fall. And we used to do koans all the time. Um, but they've, you know, we go through waves. So I was thinking for down here, I'll start the Mumon Khan. We'll go through the entire sequence of the Mumon Khan. Now, the first Mumon, the first koan in the Mumon Khan, the Mumon Khan is laid out uh, in a very structured way. And it's laid out, they're using it as a, um, a case, excuse me, there's a preface, and there's a case, and then there's a, a comment by Mumon, and there's a poem, a verse by it. So, um, Yeah, so we'll do, there's a there's case in, in the Blue Crypt record, there's a preface. In this koan collection, there's a case, a commentary, and a poem. And so we'll hit the, at least the case and the poem as we go through these. So the very first koan in the Mumon Khan, one which virtually every Zen student, certainly in the Rinzai school, and everybody in my generation when we started practicing, is the koan mu. The koan mu begins... Uh, it's by a monk asked Joshu, as a dog, a Buddha nature. And Joshu replied, Mu. Now Joshu was considered the, the pinnacle of pinnacles of pinnacles of Zen Buddhist teaching in China. Um, there are a number of koans by him. He was extremely adroit in his ability to adapt his teaching to the person in front of him. And so... Joshu in this particular koan represents this is the highest, highest teaching. This is the master of master of masters who's doing this particular koan. So he's, Joshu, whether this particular dialogue actually happened or not, I don't know. But the way it's laid out, it starts off with this kind of saying, this is really credible. You know? The highest teaching in China, the highest teaching of the Zen school by, by Chan master, Zen master, uh, Joshu. Chao Chu. Um, 
So a monk asked Chao Cho, has a dog a Buddha nature? And I sometimes translate it and say, is a rat a Buddha nature? As, as a scruffy, scurvy-ridden, you know, derelict cat of Buddha nature. It has something that is really, because in China, uh, in those days, apparently, dogs were not the pampered pets that we think of them as. They were pretty much feral, feral creatures, you know, out in the, roaming the village streets looking for scraps and getting in fights and, you know, dog-eared and torn up and they were pretty scruffy creatures. They also were used for food, too, in a lot of times of famine. They were a, a, a meat on the hoof, meat on the paw, in some cases. So the, the monk is really saying, is even some, something that's so miserable, so miserable, so, you know, gets rocks thrown at him, he's scurvy-looking, he's, he's dirty, he's so unhealthy, even something so miserable, have a Buddha nature. What they mean by Buddha nature here is, you know, we keep saying the Buddha nature, everybody's whole and complete, lacking nothing, that the Buddha nature is essentially pure, the Buddha nature is boundless, the Buddha nature is, is that which is always present, the Buddha nature is, is the, the, the Dharmakaya, the Kunchi, the Rigpa, the, you know, the bright, clear nature of enlightenment. And so the monk's asking about enlightenment. He's really saying, you know, in this, in this crazy, dirty, mixed-up world, in this crazy, dirty, mixed-up world, in this world where there are corrupt officials, in this world where there is poverty, in this world where there is racism, in this world where there is you know, every kind of ill, so even these people, even this situation, is there something whole and complete? Is there something perfect about that? That's what this koan is about. So it says, even a dog, and the dog simply represents all those, all those things, all those things. Even something that is you know, horribly sick-looking. Is there something perfect about that? They even have a Buddha nature? They have a, have a, a clarity? Is there something, something there? So often in, in uh, kind of the pseudo-theistic religions, they talk about we each have a soul, we each have an essence, a true essence, and that true essence is the same all people before God. And so he's basically saying, well, do they have a soul? Is there something in there? So you know, this this uh, the way the the koan reads in uh, some texts uh, is it's translated a monk in all seriousness. So this is not just an intellectual question. This is somebody's somebody's uh, uh, deep, deep heart question. And, you know, we can all relate to this. It doesn't say it, this particular one. We can all relate to this. I mean, the deep heart question, if you look at the craziness of these times, if you look at the falling apart of things, if you look at all the ills of society, if you look at the possibility of nuclear war, if you look at the, the, the devastation of the coral reefs and the... Glaciers in Antarctica and the warming of the oceans. Is something perfect? Is there something whole and complete? Is there something that is? So that's, that's really the question. So each koan has to be seen into to see what is this person really asking? What is this really about here? So on the surface, you know, does even a dog have a Buddha nature? Okay. But when we look into it, as we do with every koan, 
See, oh, there's more to it than just, you know, does that yapping mammal out there have something, something special about him? In Joshu, the apex of awakening, the apex of the Buddhist teaching in China says, no. Mu. Mu literally means no, has not. Now, a fundamental teaching of all of Dharma is, as I said, everything is whole and complete. The Buddha nature is the essential nature of all things. And of course, the monk is, comes to him expecting a, a teacher to say, yes, of course, you know, everything is perfect, whole and complete, lacking nothing. And yet, Joshu says, no. Boom. Well, so the koan here is, if this person one of the wisest people in all of China gives this answer, what, is, what does this mean? Now, with all koans, it's not a, just an intellectual answer. It's not just an, an idea that we have to kind of think through, but it's what is the experience? What is at the core of this? Sometimes Joshua would say yes, so this is not about yes and no. So if we think about a yes or no, yeah, he's got it, he doesn't have it, yes, he's got this thing called the Buddha nature, he doesn't have this thing called the Buddha nature, he has a soul, he doesn't have a soul. No, it doesn't get us anywhere. So there's something about the way Joshu answers this, the energy, the clarity, the force, something about the way he answers it that embodies the real answer to this question. The real answer to this kind of question is got to be expressing the non-dual. How can we express the non-dual? If we say it's non-dual, that means there's dual and non-dual, and I'm expressing the non-dual. That doesn't count. How do we express the non-dual? How do we express the, the non-separation of all things? How do we express the oneness of all things? How do we directly and vividly point to the oneness of all things? That's what this koan is about. It's not about, okay, I'm going to get better, I won't get worse. Things are okay, things are not okay. It's about pointing directly to the oneness of all things, to the non-dual, to no other. And in that oneness, in that non-separation, that is not a matter of perfection or non-perfection. It's whole and complete, lacking nothing. It is clear and bright and spacious. And it's not a thing. If it were a thing, you could point to it and say, oh yes, there's that thing, clear, bright, and spacious, and here I am, outside of it. Because that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be one. It has to be expressed. It has to be lived. It has to be our whole body. If we point to it and say, oh yes, there's this thing called the great Buddha in mind out there. Oh yes, there's a thing called the spacious mind over here. Oh yes, there's a great boundless awareness up there somewhere, or in here somewhere. 
then that's two things. That's me saying there's a boundless awareness out there. That's me saying that there's a great space out there. That's me saying, and that's duality. So how do you express non-duality? That's what this whole koan is about. And of course, it includes non-duality for not only happy things, but also sad things, also disaster, also beauty. It includes non-duality, it includes everything. Nothing can be left out. So in a way, that's what this koan is about. It's saying, okay, you know, that's what Joshua was pointing to. You can't leave anything out. There are other koans that really specify this more clearly later on. The koan mu is about how, what is the state of mind of inclusivity, of non-otherness. So if we're working on mu, the traditional way of working on mu is that you use mu as a concentration point. That you really turn your mind to mu. Mu. so that your entire concentration, your entire focus is on that Now, when you're doing that and you say, okay, I got a knee, then there's moo in a knee. Doing that and say, oh yeah, I'm mooing, I'm doing this moo, yes, this moo thing is coming out of my mouth. There's two things, there's three things, there's four things, there's duality there. So in order to actually penetrate this koan, we have to be doing something so intently, so completely, that the mind is not thinking anything else, that the mind is not busy dividing. That the mind is not busy thinking, oh yeah, there's knees down there and there's a moo at my nose. You know? That we are immersed completely. And as they say, and we're working on this koan, the whole world becomes nothing but mu because the mind is not fragmented. The mind is only doing one thing and everything becomes an expression of that one thing. And the body and the mind and the whole universe become nothing but this mu, this life energy, this non-dual expression. So when we're working on it in that way, it's kind of hard to work on it intellectually. You know, there's not much to this koan intellectually. I'm giving you a lot of stuff here. But, but to actually taste the koan means to taste the non-dual, to taste the nature of mu. And to, to work on it. And some people work on it for, you know, a few few weeks or months, some people work on it for a year, for years. Some people work on it many times. I worked on Mu with Kapilo. I worked on Mu with Aiken Roshi. I worked on Mu with Gimpo. I worked on Mu with Maizumi Roshi. I worked on Mu with Harada Roshi. All those different people. And it's boundless in its depth. It's infinite in its capacity. And that, of course, is nothing but our own true nature. The Mumon has a comment. Here's the, this is a classic comment that uh, uh, Mumon's comment. In order to master Zen, master yourself, you must pass the barrier of the ancestors. To attain this subtle realization, you must completely cut off the way of thinking. That is, something else, 
something else. Oh, there's knees. Oh, there's hands. Oh, there's her. There's him. Everything is just moo. There's just moo. You've cut off all the mind wandering someplace else. If you do not pass the barrier and do not cut off the way of thinking, you'd be like a ghost clinging to the bushes and the weeds. And I want to ask you, what is the barrier of the ancestors? Why is it this single word mu that is the front gate to Zen? Therefore, it is called the gateless gate of Zen. If you pass through it, you will not only see Joshu face to face, but you will also go hand in hand with the successive ancestors, entangling your eyebrows with theirs, seeing with the same eyes, hearing with the same ears as all the Buddhas. Non-dual. Isn't that a delightful prospect? Wouldn't you like to pass this barrier? Arouse your entire body with its 360 bones and joints and its 84,000 pores of the skin. Summon up a spirit of great doubt. I think great inquiry is a better word than doubt. Great inquiry. And concentrate on this word mu. Carry it continuously day and night. Do not form a nihilistic conception of vacancy or emptiness or relative conception of has or has not. It will be just as if you swallowed a red hot iron ball which you cannot spit out even if you try. What that means is the, this fundamental, <laughs> fundamental question about the nature of yourself in life becomes buried in your heart, becomes a touchstone for your, your life. This fundamental truth. All illusory ideas and delusive thoughts accumulated up to the present will be exterminated. When the time comes, <clears throat> internal and external will be spontaneously united. I mean, the non-dual, internal and external, not two things, only one thing. In this case, that one thing is expressed in this way. Mo. Forget yourself and the audience. You forget everything. Just that expression. All the illusory ideas and delusive thoughts accumulated up to the present will be exterminated, let go of. When the time comes, internal and external will spontaneously unite. And you will know this, but for yourself only, like a dumb person who's had a dream, Speechless person who's had a dream, who can't express it. This is only their own intimate experience. There is no other. You will know this. Then all of a sudden, an explosive conversion will occur and you will astonish the heavens and shake the earth. It will be as, if, as though you snatch away the great sword of the valiant General <coughs> Khan, some Chinese general. 
Whatever your is valor, and hold it in your hand. When you meet the Buddha, you kill him. When you meet the ancestors, you kill them. That is, this otherness, there is no other. You think of the Buddha as something other, and that's not true. Think of the ancestors as something other, and you let that whole thing go. It's, there is no other. That's what this koan is about. It doesn't obviously mean you know, you go out and slaughter somebody. It just means this whole notion, this whole fundamental notion, right at the core of our being, of there is <coughs> self and other. We actually have a glimpse, a glimpse into that truth. There is no other. And so when we see that even a little bit, this whole world is my life. This whole world and everything in it is in a way who I am. On the brink of life and death, you commend, command perfect freedom. Among the sixfold worlds and the four modes of existence, you enjoy a merry and playful samadhi. And I want to ask you again, how will you carry it out? Employ every ounce of your energy to work on this move. You hold on without interruption. You hold a single spark. And the holy candle is lit. And one of the ways they often say this is, if you're in a pitch dark room, a single match, a single little tiny candle, illuminates the whole room. And they often say that when we are working on something like this and we have a, a really fundamental experience, it's like a small candle in a large room. It fundamentally changes our relationship to the dark. But it's only a small candle. It's not a thousand watt bulb. There's still lots of dark left. But when we have some fundamental essential experience, we know something in our hearts, at our core. We know something that no matter what happens, that faith, based on our own direct experience, is unshakable. Lumon's verse. The dog, the Buddha nature, the pronouncement final and perfect. Before you say it has or has not, you are dead on the spot. Before you say it has or has not, you are a dead person on the spot. I'm trying to give you a little feeling here of the depth of, <clears throat> of you have to taste something like this. You have to taste it really, really deeply. It's not a superficial koan. It's as deep as your own heart, your own essence. So it's often you know, challenging to work on a koan like this if you work on it deeply for years. That's the beginning of the Mumankana. 